Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Rosie Ogilvie and I am the Vice Principal for Advancement at the University of Sydney. Uh, It's my great pleasure to be your MC this evening. We were last in Canberra about 18 months ago um, and we're really excited to be able to be back with a special Sydney Ideas event. It's now my great pleasure uh, to introduce the University of Sydney Vice-Chancellor, Dr Michael Spence. Over to you. Um, Look, thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. That's my function. Um, And I would also like to begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people. We're incredibly proud at the University of Sydney that our university is built on lands where people have been teaching for tens of thousands of years and that we hope we carry on that tradition of learning. And that's something we think all Australians should be proud of with us. And so it is... Um, with great pride that I acknowledge the ownership of this land of the Ngunnawal people. Well, at the University of Sydney, we have been doing much um, that is in a way captured by the work that Sharon is talking about. And I have to say I'm rather interested in what Sharon has to say this evening because I have three children under three and we, um, they and my wife and I all sleep in one room. It goes the baby, my wife, the three-year-old, the one-year-old, and me. So sleep is something not that I know very much about. Um, and in fact, last night, I think I got two hours, which Sharon is undoubtedly going to tell us is terrible for our health. <laughs> but Sharon's work is a part of a great movement that we've been having in the university over about the last six years, a movement really to take the intellectual resources of the university and to turn the place outwards. So in education, last year we ripped up the undergraduate curriculum and wrote a new one, abolished 122 degrees and have variations on 25. Each of them has a number of core characteristics that we think will be important to create graduates who are not the people whose jobs are replaced by the machines, but people who tell the machines what to do. And the capstone is an extended real-world problem-solving experience. That doesn't involve internships. Internships are a great way of learning how to make coffee and do photocopying and nobody quite knows what to do with a person when they turn up on Monday morning and the person who is supposed to be looking after them is not there. What we do is get companies and civil society organisations to come onto campus or we send our students to them in both Australia, um, Asia, North America, Europe um, and and when I say Asia, particularly China and India get them to describe a real strategic problem that they are actually working on and then multidisciplinary teams of students and academics devise a solution to that problem, giving the students an opportunity to see how their disciplinary skills are relevant. It's transformed the educational experience for the students who've been doing it so far. By 2021, all students um, enrolled at the university as an undergraduate will be a part of this, um, uh, of this extraordinary project. It's been particularly gratifying because several of the organisations have Holis Bolas adopted the solution that one of our um, teams has come up with um, and all of them have said that they've had new insights as a result of that. And in research too, we've, yes, been like everybody else, focusing on industrial partnerships and we have our $100 million a year of industrial um, income and all of the rest of it. We've had some great breakthroughs tomorrow We're going to be um, launching a company that in India will be producing 
um, uh, zinc bromide batteries that we think have the, the possibility of making solar power real. Um, they are so stable it's possible that they'll even be able to be built into building materials so that your whole house will eventually become a battery. Um, we've just sold a skin product, um, elastogen, as a um, source for healing wounds, heals wounds without any scarring at all, um, to, the maker, to the manufacturers of Botox. Unfortunately, their first application of it is going to be in a product to solve crow's feet rather <laughs> than um, for its surgical uses, but the surgical uses will come later. Um, you saw a bit on the video of a product that is now in commercial um, production in Canada that turns waste, particularly plastic and paper waste, into fuel. But more than that, the great initiative has been the kind of work that Sharon does. That is our deep commitment over the last 10 years to multidisciplinary research, starting not with the questions that academics are asking one another, but the questions that the community is, um, is, 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 is asking and seeing what we can do to harvest the intellectual resources of, of the community as a whole. And Sharon is a great example of that because she's both a part of our um, $600 million project in obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease and also of our cutting edge work um, in the Brain and Mind Centre in dementia research. And what's been fun has been, the way, has been to watch the way in which engagement with the outside world has really lit the wick of the academic community across the university. And I suppose the great vote of thanks has been the billion dollar fundraising campaign that we have just um, finished. Fun thing about that has been that people have been voting with their pocketbooks for the quality of the university's work and for their commitment to education and research. And it's just a great fillip for our researchers when they understand that they have a cheer squad. 75% of our major donors, defined as people who give us more than a million dollars, um, live in postcodes not associated with high net wealth. Only 50% of them are alumni of the university, but they're people that catch the vision of what a university can do when it turns its firepower on the problems of the world and want to partner with our researchers in doing that. So that's for our alumni community and for those of, um, of you who are joining us this evening, a sense of where we are, why I'm very pleased um, to welcome you this evening and particularly why I'm pleased that you're going to get the chance to hear from Sharon, whose work in so many ways captures the multidisciplinarity that's been the heart of this turning outwards. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Um, I'm always very honoured to be an event, at an event or engagement um, that you hold. Um, I, for those of you that don't know, I was on the University Senate for a couple of years and um, I was always very impressed um, by your ethics and by the way that you make decisions about the work that we do um, with a very, very strong moral compass. Um, and I think that it's that work that is done by our leadership and by the university and the university community in general that is really inspiring um, to, and makes me feel proud to be an academic at the University of Sydney. 
um, even more so to have been part of the strategy that is this multidisciplinary initiative. And so I hope that you agree um, that this work um, is really exciting. Um, and I'm really excited to be sharing it with you, the alumni and the general public um, here tonight. Um, so what I'm going to talk about really is um, the concept of sleep and, and brain health. So um, why do we need to think about our brain health? Um, why is it important that we get serious about our brain health? And why is it important that we think about dementia? And why is sleep important to this picture? What is sleep and how does it actually change as we age? What is the evidence that sleep-wake changes are actually linked to dementia? Is there any evidence? How good is it? And what are the proposed mechanisms by which we think sleep may be linked to dementia? And in turn, how do we improve sleep-wake functions? And then just briefly at the end, I'd like to give you a little bit of a flavour of some of the work we're doing in our new NHMRC Centre of Research Excellence where we're really hoping to optimise sleep um, for older people and people with dementias. Um, so first of all, to put it in context, many of you know um, that Australians are ageing. Um, we have a, a large increase in the Australian population. So in 2017, one in seven of Australians were aged over uh, 65. And by 2057, there'll be 8.8 .8 million Australians, um, so about 22% of the population. And many of you also know, due to advances in medical health um, in particular, that we're actually living a lot longer. And while this is very good, we are living longer. Unfortunately, dementia is a, is a disease of an ageing brain. So we never used to see as much dementia because we were dying earlier, um, but we know that actually the prevalence of dementia does increase with age. So the rough kind of figures that we use are at age uh, 60, about 1% of the population have dementia, and then it doubles every five years after that. So about one in 10 people aged 65 and three in 10 people aged um, 85 live with dementia. So there's currently 450,000 people living with this. By 2050, there'll be more than a million Australians living with dementia. And this is the greatest cause of disability in older people and the second leading cause of death. And it's important to think about this because there's considerable healthcare costs um, attributed to dementia. So by 2060, dementia is set to outstrip the healthcare costs of any other condition, being about $83 billion a year. And of course, the figures are much larger than this when we think about the cost to families, the cost to um, carers. Um, so the informal costs of caring for a person with dementia are also profound. And unfortunately, at this stage, while we do have some promises on the horizon, there is no cure. So what we need to do is start thinking about how do we reduce our risk for dementia. And this is, I guess, is where the good news is. So we know that about 50% of our risk for dementia is due to things that are modifiable. So these are things that many of you have heard about before. So heart health. So the general kind of um, motto of what's good for your heart is also good for your mind. For your mind is certainly true. But we do know some of these heart risk factors or cardiovascular risk factors for dementia are most evident in midlife. So we need to be thinking about things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol and smoking in midlife. Um, also diabetes and, and obesity. So for older people, obesity is not so much a risk factor. It's really operative in midlife. The other big one is depression. So about 8% of the risk for dementia is due to depression. So this could be diagnosed depression or it could actually be clinically significant symptoms that haven't actually ever been diagnosed before. And of course, the other big one is physical inactivity. So about a third of all older Australians are actually sedentary. Um, and so we all know that we need to increase our activity levels um, in general. 
And then the other, what's called modifiable risk factor, is considered um, education or having a low education. So there's this concept of cognitive reserve, so that if we have more education and we keep our minds active, it actually enables us to withstand more of the dementia pathology before it manifests. Um, and so with that, there's been a whole range of research looking at brain training and trying to keep our minds active. Um, and again, suggesting that we should be thinking about these things from midlife. And the reason for this is that um, we now know that the changes in the brain that lead to dementia are occurring about 10 to 20 years before somebody ever comes to a memory clinic. So at the Brain and Mind Centre, we have a, a specialist memory clinic, but it actually targets people aged over 50 rather than people aged over 65. And that's because all of all these hallmark changes we see in dementia, changes in the synaptic function of the brain, atrophy or shrinkage of our key brain structures, the build-up of amyloid in the brain, are all occurring in this preclinical period. And then what happens is someone typically comes to a memory clinic with what we call mild cognitive impairment. And mild cognitive impairment is something that is um, somewhat difficult to diagnose within a general practice setting, for example. Um, but someone nasty like me, a neuropsychologist with a clipboard and lots of tests, usually sits down and um, administers a range of things that really test memory and other kind of thinking functions in detail. And you need to be performing um, at a statistically deviant le level in order uh, from in relation to your pre-morbid IQ in order for us to say that a person has um, mild cognitive impairment. And importantly, that person does not meet criteria for dementia. So it, general functioning is fine. Shopping, organising the bills, uh, running the household, doing work, all of that thing is fine. But the concerning thing about mild cognitive impairment is that about 45 to 50% of mild cognitive impairment um, patients actually progress to dementia within about five years. So there's a conversion rate of about 15% per year and this is a real opportunity for us to capture people in that stage and offer secondary prevention. So looking at the risk factor profile and offering interventions um, at that time. And so most forms of mild cognitive impairment will, um, people will go on to transition to Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of uh, dementia that's occurring in older people, so people aged over 65, um, and this accounts for about 50 to 70% of the cases. And then this is closely followed, depending on the stats that you're looking at, by dementia with Lewy bodies and also vascular dementia. And what's concerning is that sleep disturbance is actually a major feature of all of these types of dementia. Um, of course, at this point, um, you're probably asking, well, that's obvious because the brain is degenerating, people start to have problems, but actually now we're starting to think that there may actually be a bi-directional relationship between these uh, different dementias and sleep disturbance. So I wanted to just talk you through some of the nature, some of the basics of sleep and how we kind of think about sleep um, and then go on to give you some of the evidence um, that surrounds that. So this is called a sleep hypnogram. Many of you might have seen something like this before. Um, so basically what it shows here is that uh, these are the hours of sleep. So you start off here at the beginning and then you progress through the night until you wake up. Or if you're the vice chancellor, you might need less than seven or eight hours of sleep. <laughs> or if you're me, you might need more. Um, and certainly there's no rule of thumb around how much sleep you, you need. Um, but what happens is you start off here being awake and then you drop down into the very, very light sleep stage where you're kind of just starting to drift off, but you're still aware often of what's going on in your environment. And then you, you drop down into stage two sleep, which you can see actually comprises most of the sleep we have during the night, and then down into this really nice, deep sleep, slow-wave sleep. And this kind of sleep is quite hard to wake up from. 
And then you'll cycle back up and you'll go into the REM sleep. This is the rapid eye movement sleep, the dreaming sleep, and this occurs in about 90-minute cycles through the night. So as you can see, we fulfil most of our need for sleep in those beginning parts of the night, um, and that's um, driven pr predominantly by what we call the sleep homeostat. So there's a homeostatic drive for this sleep. Um, and then we cycle into the next stage. We have a little awakening sometimes, which you may or may not know about, and then less of this deep um, sleep and then we have lots more of this dreaming sleep towards the end of the night and in the morning which is why we often wake up and we remember our dreams. But what happens as we get older is our sleep actually starts to change. So this is another hypnogram but this time of an older adult. You'll see here that there are lots more of these black bars so we're having a lot more awakenings during the night. You'll see that there's also a lot of these yellow bars, so lots of this really light sleep, which is not that um, fulfilling. And we have a lot less of the slow wave sleep. So down here, we're having a, a less of that kind of deep sleep. And you can see we're also moving in and out of these sleep stages. So we say that the sleep has become fragmented or poorly consolidated. Um, and so with that, we often then get more daytime sleepiness and older adults also tend to uh, nap a little bit more as well. But when we think about sleep, it's also important to think about the circadian system. So I have a little cartoon here um, to show you in a nutshell how the circadian system works. And the circadian system really um, is involved in the timing um, and the consolidation of our sleep and the sleep stages that, that we're in. And so what happens is we take light in through the eyes. It actually goes into the retinal ganglion cells in the eyes and goes back to the master clock. So we have the little master clock in our brain um, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So the light goes in there and then actually travels um, to the pineal gland where we produce melatonin. Have people heard of melatonin uh, generally? Yeah, so most people generally know um, what it does and that it's good for our sleep. And it, that's very much regulated by light. So in the daytime when the light is bright, melatonin is suppressed. And in the nighttime when it, it, obviously the, it's dark, um, melatonin starts to secrete. And it typically secretes about two hours before we go to sleep. And so with that, melatonin then regulates the timing of sleep and also the consolidation of sleep. And there's also other links. So the body clock or the, the SDN also actually controls a lot of the peripheral body clocks in our, in our body as well and has other pathways to the limbic structures of our brain which are involved in mood and emotion regulation and also to the formation of memories and the, the plasticity of the brain and the, and the formation of, of synapses. Um, so as you can see here, this is then the, the kind of rhythmic um, a graph of melatonin so that in the daytime it's typically suppressed and in the nighttime it secretes and it, it reaches its peak in the very early hours of the morning and then starts to um, decrease again um, with the um, sunlight. But what happens is melatonin also changes as we age. So in general we secrete much less melatonin as we get older. Um, we have a phase um, shift in melatonin, so it becomes earlier. So I don't know if anyone in the room has started to notice they go to bed earlier and wake up earlier. I think I'm already doing that, although I think I might blame that on my children. Um, but also we have a decrease in the amplitude, so less melatonin is um, secreted. And you can see here, I won't go into detail, but you can see here in general in all these graphs in the blue lines, there's much stronger amplitude, so much um, stronger curves representing the young people in comparison to the older people. So the general kind of circadian systems are, are weakened. And we also find that the interaction between the circadian system and the sleep system um, may become more misaligned in ageing as well. 
And this is all important because what we want to know is how, what does all this mean for older people? And um, we think that there are probably some strong links here with the fact that older people commonly complain of insomnia. So it's the most frequent complaint that people have in later life. So the estimates vary a lot. So about 30 to 60% may complain. But if you use um, more formal definitions where we say we need to have impairment in daytime functioning and chronicity of symptoms, for example, um, then about 12 to 25% of people will complain of insomnia. Um, but about 50% will also say that these problems are chronic. Um, so it's a big problem and one of the main reasons why older people are, are more likely to be prescribed benzodiazepines, diazepam for example, um, for their sleep or sedative hypnotics. And this is a problem particularly for older people because it's, um, they're advised not to be used for older people. They're associated with falls and confusion and actually they're not effective for treating sleep problems in the long term. They're usually only intended for short-term use of up to about two weeks. And so why are we so concerned about sleep problems and dementia? Well, firstly, we know that in Alzheimer's disease, about 50% of people have fairly marked sleep problems. We have sleep apnea um, in about 35 to 63% of people. So sleep apnea occurs um, when there's um, um, a problem in, in the airway in terms of um, breathing and so people actually gasp for air. They're unable to, um, so they either have a complete apnea, a cessation of breathing, or a hypopnea, a partial cessation of uh, breathing. And this occurs in up to 63% of people um, with Alzheimer's disease. We have fairly prominent uh, circadian change. So um, if any of you have ever had a relative with Alzheimer's disease, you might have noticed that they actually have up to, you have a lot of their time um, spent awake, and this is common in, in residential facilities in particular. There's a lot of daytime agitation, there's sleepiness in the daytime, there's people often get up at night and are, and are wandering. So some people have complete reversal of the day-night rhythms. Um, and a lot of napping in the daytime, which probably doesn't actually help um, with the sleep at night time either. But importantly, we know that if someone with Alzheimer's disease has sleep problems, they're more likely to decline more rapidly. They have a shorter survival um, and a much more severe um, uh, dementia as well. And of course, this is a problem when we're thinking about trying to keep older people with dementia living in the community because this is associated with carer burden and often um, triggers the need for um, placement in a residential facility. And when we look at the brains of people with Alzheimer's in relation to their, their sleep, we have found that there are changes and the loss of neurons in that suprachiasmatic nucleus um, as well as less melatonin in the pineal. So this area is another very interesting area um, and this is sleep disturbance that we find in Parkinson's disease. So I don't think I have the noise here, but essentially this is a person with REM sleep behaviour disorder. Has anybody ever heard of this? Um, no, so it's basically acting out your dreams. So when we go into our dreaming sleep, our REM sleep, we actually should be in a state of muscle atonia. So we're dreaming but we're not moving. Um, and what happens in REM sleep behaviour disorder, we lose the muscle atonia and so we tend to have violent dream enactment. So hitting, punching, screaming um, in our sleep um, often results in injury to the person, to their bed partner or um, crashing of furniture and other, other things around. But what's concerning about this is that it can often occur um, for the first time in midlife and about 80% of these patients will actually progress to having either Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies. And this disease is characterised by um, 
um, a problem in the, the, it's the protein alpha-synuclein that is common to both of these disorders. Um, and so it's a very, prog uh, what we call a prognostic marker for the development of these disorders um, within 20 years. So if a person presents with this, we can say with a lot of confidence there are 120 times more likely to get Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies than someone that doesn't present with that. And of course, as you can imag imagine, it's associated with poor quality of life, also associated with cognitive decline and progression to dementia in Parkinson's disease, as well as nursing home placement. And so what does the epidemiology tell us? Can we just go out and ask people, tell us about your sleep duration or your sleep quality? Um, well, the epidemiology does tell us that actually there is a, an association um, between just self-reported sleep duration and the progression of dementia. Um, so in this um, particular um, study, they examined six studies um, looking at people who, were, um, who um, were followed up and looked at the risk of decline on the mini mental state. So some of you in the health sector probably know what the mini mental state is. As a neuropsychologist, I'm not particularly fond of it because it's not very sensitive. So in this study, they did find there was an association between um, sleep duration and decline on the mini mental state. Um, and you can see that there's a U-shaped curve there, but... Um, you also can see that the risk is not particularly profound on the basis of that. So essentially, people with the seven or eight hour sleep had the lowest risk of cognitive decline. But if you looked at progression to dementia, and there were 24,000 um, people that were followed up with 2,700 cases of dementia, you can see that the risk um, is much more pronounced um, for progression to dementia. And there, there they were using hard outcomes of, of dementia, which is probably also why it was easier to to um, detect that than using the minimum mental state alone. So sleep duration seems to be important and sleep quality also seems to be important. So this was um, a meta-analysis, so many of you um, would probably know that a meta-analysis is a way to synthesise information, so it's really a gold standard way of looking at um, a number of studies and pulling the data together um, and seeing how robust the finding is. So this particular meta-analysis had 250,000 people um, and looked at 26,000 dementia cases after an average of 9.5 years. And they also reported that people had, that just reported having poor sleep quality had an increased risk with a relative ratio of about 1.2. So about 20% greater risk of having dementia if they complained of poor sleep quality. And so epidemiology is certainly very important. Um, it's also important to think about what are the mechanisms by which these kinds of things might be occurring um, and what kind of groups can we study these in in order to really kind of get a good grasp of what we should be doing about it. And I like to think our research is driven by not just science, but actually thinking about how can we take this into clinical practice. And so we've been looking at this, um, these problems in a lot more detail in mild cognitive impairment. So I told you before, this is a group that is prodromal for Alzheimer's disease and other um, dementias at very, very high risk. Firstly, people with mild cognitive impairment do indeed report having more sleep disturbances than general um, older people. If we actually give them detailed neuropsychological testing, looking at their memory, looking at decision-making, problem-solving, ability to kind of shift between different trains of thought, and we also look at their sleep using these accelerometers, um, which are called actigraphy watches, we found that there are very, very strong relationships between sleep disturbance and particularly being awake at night, having lots of movement and awakenings during sleep, and performance on these cognitive measures. 
But we followed that up and looked at that in more detail, looking at the connectivity of the brain, and we found that in people with mild cognitive impairment with sleep disturbance, there are marked changes in the, the way that the brain is able to connect. And these are in the temporal and parietal networks of the brain, and these are the networks that are also involved in dementia. So often in Alzheimer's disease, the pathology will start in the hippocampus, which is the kind of seat of our memory, and spread around to the temporal lobes and then to the parietal lobes. So these are the same networks that seem to be linked to some of the sleep disturbance. Also using PET scan, so this is um, a scan using a particular ligand, uh, ligand um, that actually looks at the amount of beta amyloid in the brain. So beta amyloid is the sticky protein that's involved in Alzheimer's disease and you can see in this particular scan this person has a lot of this in their brain in comparison to the person um, here on the left. And we found that these levels of beta amyloid also seem to be linked to sleep disturbance um, in healthy older people. Um, so in that even in that preclinical phase, um, international groups have found that, but also in people that have some degree of cognitive impairment as well. And then some other um, groups internationally have looked at um, the wake-promoting hormone orexin and found that this is actually increased in the cerebrospinal fluid of people with mild cognitive impairment and particularly in those that have sleep disturbance. And these are at the levels of the patients that have Alzheimer's disease. But what we've wanted to do is really start to delve a little bit deeper. So when you go in and have a, a sleep study in a sleep lab, you'll get some basic information like your total sleep time, how much time, deep sleep you had, um, how much REM sleep you had, that kind of thing. But we've been really interested in unpacking this and looking at the microarchitecture of sleep, so looking at the neurophysiology in a lot more detail. So in this particular study, um, we... Um, sent a lot of our, our patients that have mild cognitive impairment to the sleep lab to have this detailed investigation and then looked in detail at these things that are called sleep spindles. So I sh when I showed you the initial graph of the sleep architecture, I said there was a lot of our sleep was in that green phase, the stage two sleep. So in that stage two sleep and also to some extent in slow wave sleep, we have these rhythmic bursts of activity that are called a sleep spindle. And they originate in the thalamus of the brain and they actually ripple down through the hippocampus and they actually play a, a role in consolidating our memories as well. Um, so these are believed to be really indicative of the quality of, of our sleep. And as we get older, they do tend to change. So they change in their amplitude and duration and the density. So we have much less of them um, than we do when we're younger. And what we found here is that um, there was a fairly substantial change in the um, spindle density um, of um, people with um, mild cognitive impairment. And we looked at this um, according to the frequency range that spindles occur in um, on the EEG. And I won't go into all the technical details around that. But it's sufficient to say that we're interested not just in do they differ, but do these relate to changes in um, brain degeneration. So what we did is we also did MRI scans of the brain. So we took a picture of the brain and then we looked at the thalamus, the structure that, that is involved in the generation of these sleep spindles, and also the hippocampus, so the, the part of the brain that lays down our memories. So you can see here there's the thalamus and then the hippocampus on the side. And what we found in the control groups were that these nice linear associations between the size of the hippocampus or thalamus and the generation of these spindles. But in the people with mild cognitive impairment, these associations are completely obliterated. Um, so this tells us that there's certainly something happening within the network of the brain that actually enables us to generate these spindles and that's involved also in, in mild cognitive impairment. 
And it's just the beginning. Our further work now will be going in and characterising a lot of the detail, um, these spindles, and also looking at how we might enhance them. And so what about circadian rhythms in mild cognitive impairment? So I told you before that in Alzheimer's disease there's a clear problem in circadian rhythms, day-night reversal, advance of the sleep stage, um, and also nocturnal um, awakening and people wandering, etc. So we really wanted to know if people with mild cognitive impairment also have these changes in um, their circadian rhythm. Now, measuring circadian rhythm is very difficult because you need to put someone in a light-controlled environment. Um, so we did this at the Brain and Mind Centre. We did a very in-depth three-night study. People came in and had very detailed studies, uh, polysomnography or EEG studies um, of, their, of their brain for two nights. And then we also did a, a, a light-controlled study where we kept people in the sleep lab under very, very dim light conditions. And that's important because if the lights are on, people secrete more melatonin. It's not a natural um, indicator of that. So we did this study where we had people come into the lab um, in the afternoon and then we also kept them up two hours past their bedtime and we took salivary samples of melatonin um, at regular intervals. And it looks here like the people with mild cognitive impairment have more melatonin, but that actually wasn't a statistically significant effect. What we did find is that people with uh, mild cognitive impairment were the timing of their melatonin onset was much earlier um, the control, than controls. And this was important because we also found that it was associated with their memory performance. Um, and this study has, was probably the first study to show this, and there hasn't been another one, or hasn't actually been a replication of it yet, though it's um, commonly cited. Um, because if we know that there's a problem in the circadian um, rhythms of people with mild cognitive impairment, this is a real opportunity for us to think about targeting interventions in this particular phase. What can we do if we can improve the timing of someone's sleep or the secretion of melatonin? And it's not just about knowing that there is circadian disruption, but actually a lot of the animal work shows that circadian misalignment or changes in the timing of our sleep um, are actually um, have fairly detrimental effects on the rest of our brain health. So we know that the, the function of astrocytes um, is compromised by circadian disruption. We know that gene transcription is also compromised. So there is actually a certain clock genes that actually control the transcription um, of, of genes. Um, we also know that people's seizure threshold can be changed by, by this. And also neurogenesis, so the ability of the brain to produce um, new brain cells. And I wanted to go on and talk about that now, really, in the context of thinking about, well, okay, so we, there does seem to be a link here between certain types of neurodegeneration and sleep. But if that's the case, then what are the mechanisms? And is it really just because um, someone's brain is degenerating that they're having sleep problems, or are there other things that kind of underpin this? And so, really, just to give you a kind of introduction to that, I mean, most of you would know that we do tend to get a bit grumpy um, when we haven't had enough sleep. So we tend to get irritable, we're not so alert, and our mood is not so great. But actually, a lot of studies show that there are profound effects, you know, much broader than that. So there are immune responses are, are controlled by sleep and circadian rhythms, inflammatory responses in the brain, and also broader health effects. So many of you would probably know that having sleep disorders or doing shift work, for example, or having obstructive sleep apnea is associated with a range of other cardiometabolic effects. So effects on glucose, sensitivity, insulin resistance, and also our blood pressure and heart rate. There's also a really solid body of work showing that um, sleep is important for synaptic density, so in, um, forging the connections um, between our neurons in the brain and, and strengthening those. Um, so we are actually able to make new memories um, and, um, and 
and new thoughts. But the other thing we know is that sleep actually is really important for um, supporting the growth of new brain cells. So we never used to think that the brain was capable of regenerating. But in the last 10 years or so, we have discovered that the brain can actually generate new brain cells. And these are actually born in the hippocampus. So I've said this word a few times and it's this really nice embryonic kind of structure that um, um, is the seat of our memory and you can see here it's very intricate, it's very fo um, folded, it, it develops very early as I said but it's also a very sensitive structure of the brain and it really does store um, and underpin all the memories that we're able to make and so the, the literature would suggest that what happens in the daytime is we take information in it goes into our hippocampus, it's stored in there. These sleep spindles I was telling you about then kind of ripple down to the hippocampus and take this information away, put it somewhere else in the brain and then that frees up the hippocampus for the processing the next day. We do know this structure is capable of neurogenesis. There are lots of things that affect neurogenesis in the hippocampus that I, I won't go into in detail, but things like depression and physical activity also seem to impact on neurogenesis. But we also know from animal studies that having prolonged sleep loss also seems to affect um, neurogenesis um, within the hippocampus. So if you have only one day of sleep loss, for example, you're okay, Vice-Chancellor. <laughs> if you have chronic sleep um, loss, then there does seem actually to be an effect on the number of these cells that are able to proliferate um, and migrate through the brain. Um, so um, I guess you know we are actually able to withstand a little bit of sleep loss, but you know, more chronic effects um, are more profound um, in, on this particular structure. And in humans, we don't have a lot of studies that have looked at, that, uh, looked at this yet. Our own work suggests that if you measure the size of the hippocampus, it is actually linked to um, sleep, um, sleep loss, so there is an association there. And so it's something that we're really keen to delve into, and a lot of the work we're doing at the moment is looking at this hippocampus and looking at all the tiny little subsections of it and seeing which parts of those are linked to these various um, problems with, with sleep. So I also said that the quality of sleep is important. Um, so having lots of this nice, rich and dense, slow wave activity and also these sleep spindles. So this is just a little cartoon showing you um, the activity that we're looking at from the EEG. And then what we do is we use a um, particular um, type of analysis called power spectral analysis to look at all the frequencies of this EEG activity. And it's this activity here in about the 10 to 15 or 11 to 15 frequency range that actually underpins these sleep spindles. So these are something that was kind of on all of our radar to look out for and the reason is we think that we can improve these sleep spindles. If we can improve sleep spindles, we can probably also improve the way that someone consolidates their memories. So we know that the, pro the um, state of sleep is much better for our memories than being awake. If I ask you all to learn something now and half of you stay awake and half of you have a little nap, those of you that have the nap will actually remember the material much better than those of you that stay awake. Um, so sleep is really important for laying down these memories and laying them down overnight. This process does seem to change as we get older so that the strength between the sleep spindles and memories is not as great as when we're younger. But we've um, done a lot of work in adapting a lot of the paradigms and cognitive tests and things that are used in the sleep samples. The young, usually typically Harvard attending students go along to a sleep lab and, and do these um, various tests which are not at all suitable for giving to people in early phases of dementia. So we've started to kind of map how these spindles then relate to people's memory consolidation overnight. 
The other really exciting thing about sleep that some of you may have heard about is that um, there's this discovery of sleep being um, the glymphatic um, system or a plumbing system or a sewage system for the brain. And essentially, um, the reason why that's important is that many of the proteins that are linked to dementia, so I mentioned beta amyloid, tau is the other protein that is particularly toxic and very much mapped to our clinical symptoms, alpha-synuclein that's involved in um, Parkinson's and dementia with Lewy bodies. These are all present in our brain in what we call the interstitial or extracellular space, so the space that sits outside of our cells. And we know that in animal studies, the amount of this um, uh, protein is actually much higher when we're awake than when we're asleep. Um, so that's been shown very eloquently in animal studies, as you can often do. And in human studies, we've seen similar oscillations if you look at the cerebrospinal fluid. So people's levels of this beta amyloid are much higher in the wake state than sleep. But in 2013, there was a group of researchers that um, showed essentially that there is such a thing as the glymphatic system, and the glymphatic system is, is the reason why we find these circadian oscillations in beta amyloid. And it's called the glymphatic system because it's actually driven by glial cells in the brain. Um, so it's like the lymphatic system, it's involved in clearance, um, and it's particularly operative in these nice deep sleep stages that I was telling you about. There's been further studies in animals and a couple in humans that have also shown that if you deprive someone of sleep, um, this seems to accelerate these amyloid plaque depositions, but if you promote sleep um, with a rexin antagonist, um, this seems to inhibit the plaque um, formation. And so I just wanted to take you on a, a, a little journey to demonstrate that a little bit more to you and what actually is happening in the brain um, during sleep as, as uh, this glymphatic system is operative. And essentially what's happening is the cerebrospinal fluid is coming in to the brain. It comes out into this extracellular space. And you can see actually the glial cells in the purple up the top there, what they do is actually either shrink or expand um, and then enable the cerebrospinal fluid to come out, mop up all the kind of proteins that are um, involved in, the, in um, dementia and then actually take them back up um, by shrinking or swelling. So this is a mechanism by which it actually removes the waste um, out of the brain and clears it um, completely. So there's not a huge amount of evidence for this yet in humans because it's very, very hard to measure this. So most of the, the evidence has come from animal studies. Um, but there are a couple of imaging methods um, that we think we may be able to apply in order to be able to look at this in more detail. So obstructive sleep apnea is the next one that we really need to think of in terms of being something that's harmful for our brain. Um, so this is due to a collapse of the airway during sleep. Um, and there's two things that happen, um, or a few things that happen actually, but sleep fragmentation is a big one. So you may move in and out of sleep stages a lot. So your sleep is very poorly consolidated. You have lots of arousals or awakenings during sleep. The other thing you have is hypocapnia, so changes in carbon dioxide, but the big one seems to be hypoxia. So this is a loss of oxygen. The brain is being starved of oxygen. So a person may have an apnea where they stop breathing or a hypopnea, and then oxygen um, levels in the blood 
drop. Um, and this in turn seems to be associated with changes in this glymphatic system, seems to be associated with oxidative stress and also inflammation. This then seems to set off a cascade of events, so endothelial function, so changes in the arteries. Um, also white matter lesions in the brain, so when we do an MRI scan we can see that people have had damage in the white matter which connects the, the various parts of our brain. And also the deposition of tau, so some good studies now showing sleep apnea is linked to um, both amyloid and tau in the brain. And in turn this leads to memory decline and dementia. And this is, I guess, not just a theory, but for many years, work that I did many, many years ago with Peter Sestouli, who's our ResMed chair, um, we looked at cognitive impairment in um, people with obstructive sleep apnea and showed that actually there were changes in the speed at which people are able to think, changes in memory, and also changes in a higher order thinking functions. Other studies have followed people up that have sleep apnea and show that they're at much greater risk of developing mild cognitive impairment and dementia. Some studies have shown that in five years, others in 15 years. And a recent meta-analysis, again the gold standard way of synthesising this information, included more than 4 million people and showed that having obstructive sleep apnea in midlife is associated with a 26% increased risk for dementia. So we've actually been looking at this in more detail in people that have been attending our memory clinic. So at the Brain and Mind Centre we have this healthy brain ageing clinic. People come along with problems complaining about their memory and we decided that we would look at their sleep. So they're not complaining of sleep problems but we decided to give everybody a sleep study and actually people turned out to have moderate levels of sleep apnea as you might expect based on the prevalence um, levels that I told you about before. But what we found, what was interesting, we, we looked at all of the kind of variables that you might get from a standard sleep study and we found that oxygen desaturation was one variable that really stood out and this was linked to having um, atrophy or shrinkage of these um, brain regions the, in the, the temporal brain regions um, on both sides. And in turn, this was actually linked to memory dysfunction. So this... Um, story, I guess, was very newsworthy. BBC World loved it um, because um, really what this is saying is that we, we should be, when people are coming along to general practice or to hospitals or memory clinics um, or, you know, any kind of medical practitioner complaining about their memory, not only do we need to be thinking about the traditional risk factors, but we really need to be screening people for sleep apnea and considering whether or not they need treatment. This is a really opportune time to target them and we do have a gold standard treatment. CPAP invented at the University of Sydney um, for sleep apnea so really we should be trying to use this and the biggest problem with sleep apnea is not actually its efficacy but the fact that people don't usually like wearing it so compliance is usually the problem but there are other alternatives now. Um, another thing that we've been doing at the Brain and Mind Centre is looking um, at the chemicals inside the brain using magnetic resonance um, spectroscopy. And in, in this work, we have one of the only scanners um, in Australia where we're able to measure um, glutathione. So glutathione, glutathione is the brain's major antioxidant and we take a sample of this from the frontal regions of the brain. We then look at all the peaks of these chemicals that are taken and we're actually able to isolate it on, on the spectra. And in, on, in people that have had these scans and also had sleep studies, we also showed that sleep apnea was associated with changes um, in glutathione and also in um, cognition. And this is important because, again, we can target oxidative stress. We can think about ways to combat oxidative stress in older people, not only linked to heart disease, but now also our work is suggesting it's probably linked to dementia. 
Um, one of my traditional research areas has been in depression, so we've been very sure to try and look at these associations between sleep and depression. The people with MCI that I told you about earlier that have a lot of sleep disturbance, one of the biggest predictors of their sleep disturbance is actually depression. Um, so it, it accounts for um, around about 20% of, of the sleep disturbance, um, uniquely accounts for that. Um, and what happens um, in the community studies have shown that if people have sleep disturbance, they're more likely to get depression and they're more likely to have a recurrence of depression. And in our own work, we've really been looking at the, the rhythms of depression um, and showing that, um, oops, sorry, something's happened here. Showing that um, people who have remitted depression, so they no longer meet criteria for major depression, still actually have a lot of um, changes in their daily activity rhythms in their circadian system. Um, and those that have current depression still actually have a lot of nocturnal um, sleep disturbance as well. Um, and we've then looked in detail at the melatonin levels of people with depression and we've shown a big disconnect, um, as you can see in this graph here, um, between the levels of melatonin um, and the onset of someone's sleep. So that's particularly pronounced in people with depression. So the timing of their sleep and circadian system is much more out of whack. And we've been doing a lot more work here um, in the youth mental health cohorts um, with people with depression that we can talk about later if you're interested. Um, so my next slide was, what treatments are available? I don't have time to go into these in detail, but obviously there's lots of things that we need to think about when considering treatments um, in relation to sleep problems. A lot of things are things that are modifiable, things within the environment, um, things within someone's medical history or medications that they're taking, lighting, um, temperature in, in a room is very important because obviously temperature also follows a circadian rhythm is very closely linked to um, melatonin. Um, but also sleep expectations. So we know, as I said, that depression is strongly linked to sleep disturbance, but we also know that actually we can challenge a lot of people's expectations about their sleep and treat a lot of forms of sleep disturbance. So actually... Um, cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia or what we call CBTI is currently the best treatment we have for sleep disturbance. Um, it's mostly been used in younger people with insomnia but we recently completed a trial showing it was effective also in people with mild cognitive impairment. Thinking about light um, and napping are also important. So napping is okay if it's just after lunch and if it's for a brief period of time, about 10 minutes to 30 minutes, but beyond that people start to go into deep sleep. Um, and then they start to fulfil that need for deep sleep, which impacts on the quality of their sleep at night, um, but also means that you wake up feeling a bit groggy. Um, personally, I think that if you're going to go out and hit the town and you need to kind of have a good boost, then having a good sleep, a nap in the afternoon, 30 to 45 minutes, and going into that deep sleep stage is helpful, and our work and others' work shows that actually does give you a boost right up into the evening, so it keeps you more alert. Um, a lot of the new work that we're, we're looking at is um, examining auditory sound waves. So actually, um, sound seem to be able to enhance the quality of someone's slow wave sleep. Um, and some of the work we're doing with uh, one of the C NHMRC, CRC, some of the rest of the team are working on, is looking at new forms of technology for that, so using phones, etc. Exercise is awesome for sleep. Um, not just aerobic exercise, but also um, uh, progressive um, resistance training seems to actually enhance the um, quality of sleep as well, and um, melatonin, which I'll talk about. So do sleeping pills work? The short answer is no, they don't work. Um, they work in the short term um, for up to a couple of weeks. They certainly have their place, um, but they shouldn't be used beyond that. Um, and recent review actually showed that in Alzheimer's disease, they do not work um, at all. 
However, there is more evidence actually suggesting that melatonin um, is um, useful, not only in mild cognitive impairment, but also in Alzheimer's disease. The thing about melatonin is we know that it's a powerful antioxidant. So I was talking before about oxidative stress. Um, animal studies have shown that melatonin can actually um, protect against the formation of beta amyloid in the brain, so we think actually it may have a role to play um, in beta amyloid deposition. Um, light is the other thing that has a profound effect, so people don't realise even watching TV at night with the lights on actually has a profound effect on keeping people awake. Um, so just finally, just a couple of slides, I wanted to tell you now where we're headed um, with this um, research. So we were very fortunate um, to now get a new centre of research excellence to optimise sleep in brain ageing and neurodegeneration. And what we're really going to be focusing on now is trying to unravel these relationships more. So we're going to be incorporating some newer technologies. We're going to be looking at epigenetics. How does the gene expression change in relation to having a sleep problem or having treatment for a sleep problem? How does this relate to the um, metabolome? So we're using metabolomics to look at some of the consequences of sleep loss, etc. How do we use new forms of imaging, such as the PET imaging, to really track what we're doing? What happens if we find these problems? Can we actually do new clinical trials? Can we find out what really works for people with different disease states? Um, and we're really now thinking about using technology for older people. We know that older people do use technology. 82% of the people attending our clinic use smartphones and are interested in having interventions for their sleep and for their memory. And really what we want to be able to do is actually take it out to consumers so that people can actually track their sleep and we can actually give them real-time feedback so that we can actually have more cost-effective interventions for these sleep problems. We're going to be doing this in a range of cohorts, so our Healthy Brain Aging cohort, which has also includes mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's as well as depression, frontotemporal dementia, um, led by uh, John Hodges and Glenda Halliday in particular. Simon Lewis has got a big program on Parkinson's disease. You might have heard about the new um, funding for the Parkinson's disease trials, um, which is involved in. And the other big groups are really looking at those that present with the sleep disorders and what can we do um, longitudinally for those groups. So in a nutshell, um, I propose that sleep-wake problems are common in ageing um, and there certainly is a link uh, between dementia. It does seem to be emerging as a bi-directional link, but we do seem to need more information. Multiple mechanisms, it's certainly not a single disease, um, talking about sleep in one single term. We really need to be thinking about the quality of sleep, um, the quantity of sleep, um, for example. Um, and we need to be thinking about the different mechanisms that sleep is having an impact on, synaptic plasticity, neurogenesis, the glymphatic system, also what is the role of oxidative stress and sleep apnea and depression. Um, and we really now need to take this work forward um, to the next level and then we can actually start to use it to change not only policy but also practice as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.